I think developing some type of talent <laughs> as you recognize your passions is super important. If you just blindly go after your, your passions, I think it's a good way to get hurt. So for some reason, and it goes back to those, as you've recognized, those early 80s Thrasher magazines. And, you know, for, for most of my life, I've been stewing on what works and what doesn't work when you're talking to people through this particular medium. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking about readers. That's right, those cheap glasses you buy at Walgreens or the supermarket when you get older and can't see so good. Well, not exactly those readers. We're talking about cool rock and roll readers. Trust me, you'll love it. And before we change your perception on what readers are and who they are for, here's a gentle reminder. If you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Apple and Spotify use these ratings as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on their charts. Uh, Does anyone really listen to this and review us over at Apple Podcasts and Spotify? Probably not. So let's get on with the show. Today's guest is Tim Parr. Tim has both founded new companies as well as worked for some of the most respected brands in the lifestyle industries. Brands such as Patagonia, L.L. Bean, Filson, Burton, and many more have trusted his methods and guidance on big issues that steer ships over long periods of time. He has conducted lectures at the Stanford School of Design, the San Francisco Academy of Art, and the California College of Arts. It all began with the founding of the iconic bike brand Swobo, and then, as Tim puts it, elevated the shoveling yak manure with Yvonne Chouinard at Patagonia. Throw in some years as a touring bluegrass musician, and now he has founded Caddis, the brand that will redefine what it is to age in contemporary culture. Now, Caddis is a unique brand because they are making readers cool. They're helping their community to own their age. And this topic is especially resonant with me as I think about age. I have an aging father. And that gets me thinking about my own age a lot lately. And the truth is, I've never felt the right age. When I was young, I wanted to be old. And as I get older, as we all do, I want to be younger. I think it's about time that I hear Tim's message and own my age. Maybe it's a message you need to hear as well. Tim Parr has had quite a journey, always able to follow his passions and start businesses. I am fascinated by Tim's outlook on brand and business, and I know you will be too. And this is his story. I am here with Tim Parr, the founder of Caddis. And Tim, let's just get right into it. What is Caddis? Caddis is a lifestyle brand 
that is specifically going after 45 to 65 year olds, which is a market that hasn't seen lifestyle marketing branding go after them. And I just, go after is a wrong term. I would say rally around is a better way to put it. Yeah. And to, to clarify a bit, Caddis also, I mean, you, you specialize, or at least your flagship product, and you're, I see you're starting to branch out a bit, but your flagship product, your, the product you started with were readers, uh, which is yeah. a very interesting kind of product to start with, because I think the perception of readers is Walmart and old people and a lot of things. And we can talk about that. But what really I think is cool about this brand, and I'd love to talk about it, is right away, right up front, you kind of, you're not selling readers, you're selling this idea of owning your age and it being okay to, to, to grow older. And I can tell you personally, that's something that I struggle with. It's something that I have a really hard time with. And, mm-hmm. and I think about a lot. So this idea of age, is this, is this something that's, that's consumed you or been on your mind as, as you start to grow older? No, not at all. And in fact, it wasn't even uh, prior to us selling anything. I was in the process of raising money. And before we had this clarity on, on what we were really doing, which was what you just described, we were in the reader market. So, I mean, as a, as a concept, and we were just, you know, we were selling cooler, hipper, I mean, for terrible words to use, but they cut to the chase, reading glasses, you know, with a lifestyle marketing angle, that was the entirety of, of what we were selling. And then it wasn't until, um, and prior to that, we weren't selling anything up until this point. We were, I, had, I had six pairs of glasses and I was trying to raise a little bit of money to get this thing off the ground. So I was in a meeting with someone in San Francisco at a, at a venture capital place. And the person is you know, going, she understood the product and everything was lining up perfectly. And on the back of our packaging, there's this quote about aging and just to own it. And they go, well, what's this? And I had literally just slapped it on there in the 11th hour. Subconsciously, it seemed like a good idea at the time to call people out about how they think about aging. But, but we hadn't really delved into it. I go, well, I just kind of think that people should own age. And they told me, like, you can't do that. And everyone wants to believe that they're 15 years younger than they are, and this won't work. You can't do that. And meeting was over at that point because of our position, which wasn't even a position at the time. Mind you, it was was some flippant copy that I wrote on the back and had it printed on the packaging. And then by the time I walked from that desk down to the street, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, like that's what we're doing. Like we're not in the reading glass market. Like we're, there's a whole much larger idea here. It was the first moment where I really found our why in our business. Like, why should we even matter? Like, why do we exist? And if it was just to cut different frames and put reading glass lenses in it, it wasn't enough. And then by the time I hit the street, it was like I had it. Like th- this is the business that we're in. We're in the business of owning age, just like Patagonia owns corporate stewardship or, you know, Casper owns sleep or Away owns travel. Like we're, we're going to own age. So that's where it 
that's basically where that's where it came from. Yeah, and it, it, to this point, were you were you searching for that why or like what was going yeah, on? Yeah, but I didn't know it. Yes, <laughs> but this is all in hindsight because I wasn't like I was in it, but I wasn't fully bought into it. Like, okay, like this is a white space. Like the only product that's on the market is ten dollar garbage from Walgreens or CVS. We know we can do the design. We know we can do the marketing. We know, we don't know, but we, we have a strong inclination that the market is there. We're not the only ones that feel this way about the product and the experience of buying the product. But it wasn't, it wasn't enough. And there, I had one foot in. And then after that meeting, I had both feet in because at that point, it felt punk rock. Like it was like, okay, we're going, we're going after a taboo subject matter that freaks the hell out of people. Like that seems like fun. And we'll, we'll create this house called age and the reading glasses are, are the, are the door prize. You know, it's like join our club and here's your, here's your, here's your badge, which became the glasses. And so you said it wasn't working like tangibly, what wasn't working for you? Like why, you know, what was going on? I don't, I didn't, cause I didn't need to do it. And, and, um, these things are hard. <laughs> Let's be honest. They're, they're really hard. Most of them don't work. You know, it's not my first one. It's like my third or fourth one. So, and it was like, okay, it, it was just that. So what, you know, like, okay, so what? So, so you found a niche to sell more reading glasses and it wasn't enough. And, it, it, again, remind you, I don't have this type of foresight. This is all looking backwards and I can evaluate what was going through me after the fact. And I, di- I didn't have that, that big picture. This is why we exist. We're going to own age and we're going to change how people feel about aging in, a, a, in, in this culture. And so you're, you're walking out of that meeting, it hits you and, and, you know, f- help me fill in the you know gaps. If I'm, if I'm not retelling the story, correctly. if it hits you, it's like lightning bolt, it's punk rock. You're like, this is, is what we're selling. Like, like, how did you know that that was the thing to hold on to now? And that this was what you were going to, the market you were about to enter. Pattern recognition. So it was the thing that when I got that response from that person who is a venture capitalist who, who, you know, has a very conservative, you know, point of view about a lot of stuff. If I could get that reaction out of somebody, I can get a different reaction out of a subculture. So if, if that person was uh, so against that idea like something tell me inside of me, I could tap into a crew that would be the yang to that yang. So yeah, so who was the first person that you ran and said, I, I got this and told this? I remember, <laughs> I'm dialing my phone because I had, uh, we, there is, after, after I started, I, I, I grabbed four or five co-founders with, with me to, to do the heavy lifting in the early days. So I remember running down the street in San Francisco and dialing each one of them saying, okay, this is what we're doing now. And it was a, it was a 50, 50 of, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and all right. Awesome. Sounds great. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I remember it vividly. 
And so like why even readers? So you mentioned that this is, you know, you've had multiple mm-hmm. experiences in, in starting businesses. We'll talk mm-hmm. a bit about your past. I mean, you've, you've had some great brand building uh, experience in education, like of all the things, you know, and uh, that you could have, you could have done like what, why readers? That's exactly, it's the, like your reaction to it is exactly why you should do it. So the dusted over unsexy categories that's where the gold lies, not the cool, sexy categories to sound kind of redundant. But I, I, I knew that's where the fun lies is to change people's minds about things. So one, it's a product that people need. It, it's a, it's a, by definition, it is a, a medical device. So people need it. It's not like we were making another pair of denim jeans or, you know, something that you have to justify, you know, picking yet another pair for your closet or something. So there was, there was that aspect to it. One, I needed them and I couldn't find anything that worked. So I wanted to create the ones that I wanted. And it, it just felt right because everyone thought, you know, like who, who cares about readers? <laughs> and if you go back to my, my past, like I had a stint in cycling and it was the same thing. It was like, we, we went up against the black, like we're short. So it was almost like it was doing it all over again. I had another foe to, to go against it, which was the crappy $10 only option at the, at the moment. Yeah, and the way that I'm imagining it and, and filling in the gaps of your story is that like you're, you're at Walmart or something and you're standing there looking at, at readers and you're like, these things are messed up. And, and it's weird, like I, I, you know, like I don't have a lot of experience with readers. And so it's also confusing, you know, like um, when, when I first became aware of your company, I was like, do I need readers? You know, and like, how do they work? And there's like this magnification, mm-hmm. there's just kind of like this weird thing around them. They're not, you know, I think I grew up, where you you go to the optometrist and you get glasses or whatever you know and, right. and, and they tell you you know it's not like really the self diagnostic thing and to your point I think to me readers just seemed like this thing that you did because maybe you couldn't afford glasses or like mm-hmm. like like it was like a stopgap or something but that that's neither here nor there when was this how it happened were you were you you mentioned you needed readers were you just standing there in front of the display being like this thing this is this is just messed up yeah and I don't wear glasses normal eyewear until I needed reading glasses. So the whole process of, of corrective eyewear, I had no clue. I didn't know how things get fixed. So I was down in Malibu and I, I was killing time. So I walk into this optometry shop. I go, I got this problem where I can't see. And like, oh yeah, yeah. Using reading glasses, pick a frame and we'll, you know, we'll figure out what you need and we'll pop them in. We'll send them to you in 10 days. So like, all right, I, I guess that's how it works. I don't know. But I started looking at the frames I want and they're, you know, between $300 and $800. And then I had to wait like 10 days. And long story short, I ended up getting nothing and uh, walking out of there just thinking like something's broken here. And I, I asked the guy in the store, I go like, is it true? Like either I'm spending $10 at Walgreens or I'm spending $400 here. And is that kind of it? He goes, oh, no, no, no. So he goes in the back of the store, pulls open a drawer. You know, an optometry store in Malibu is just like, you know, like a beautiful merchandise thing. The readers were all crammed into a drawer in the back. 
and they're like purple and blue and like cat eye and you know they fold 800 different ways and he goes we can choose from any of these and you know those are like 40 bucks or really like that's it i'm gonna put these things on my face and that's the spectrum of choice that i'm looking at so it was like one of those classic situations where you know person needed thing, thing didn't exist, go make the thing that you want. So that's, that's basically how it all started was from that moment. And then I did some homework and, you know, reading glasses, 90% of people in this country will, will need them at some point over the age of 40. Yeah. That's a, that's a great stat when you're starting a, a business and looking for a, a target market. Yeah. 90, 90% of people over 40. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's my, that's my case. You know, these are reading glasses. I don't wear them all the time. I wear them in front of the computer and, and exactly to your point. I mean, I felt like I had two options. It was Walgreens and the optometrist and ended up going to the optometrist mm. and, and here I could have been doing things a lot different. And so Tim, <laughs> what, what, what I get is this real sense though, that, that you have this, this quality about you that you look and notice when, where things are broken and where things don't make sense. And so Mm-hmm. And, and I could gather that's probably, and you can, you can tell me if it's untrue, but, you know, looking at your, your past experience as well, that kind of holds true that you're a, a, a serial entrepreneur. I mean, was that always the case for you? Like when you were a young, young kid, were you looking around the world and being like, this, this is, this isn't working or this is, this is what I want to do. Like, what were you like as a kid? Were you entrepreneurial? I, uh, no, but I, I think I attribute a lot of how I was wired to early 80s Thrasher magazine. Which I am a massive fan. If you, you probably are a big fan of <laughs> Baby Got Backstory, but I talk about it a lot oh, on really? the, uh, on the podcast. And it's a whole reason I moved to California <laughs> after I went to college because I <laughs> had fallen in love with the beautiful imagery of Venice Beach only to realize <laughs> that none of that was true, you know, it was Venice was yeah, a tough place. And it, was, yeah. and it was it was a lot harder and their kid those kids had really hard lives, but I thought it was awesome. And uh, I, so I'm a big fan. So I can't wait to hear where you're going with this. So I I viewed that as communication. And it was a it was it was visual communication in a way that was very new. It was the irreverent, you know, part that uh, that didn't really exist before that. It was it was it was the irreverence meets punk rock, meets uh, some form of street culture fashion, um, all wrapped up into into that magazine. And I remember I remember doing that, and with something like let's say I mean back in the day it was like Action Now or or Surfer magazine, just flipping through the pages as like a teenager or even younger, and registering what was right or what was wrong just from just from cues and i think that had a much larger impact on me than just about anything in my life and i remember my, my mom used to collect a lot of fashion magazines and I, I would do the same through those i remember going through old old w magazines and vogues and, and the rest of them you know i was like 10 years old or something and just rapidly flipping through because i didn't care about the content I cared about some type of communication and like, I would just, I, I wouldn't know it until I saw it. And then I, I would see it. And at the time I could just care. I just thought like, okay, well, what's, what's talking, what, what's cool. What can I, 
what, what, what are the hidden, hidden almost like Easter eggs inside this, inside this medium to where I can, I can get knowledge of, of, of what's happening. And I, I, I put most of, of how I am from those early days. And do you have a sense of where that came from and were your parents into communication? Were they into no. any of that kind of stuff? No, it's probably a lack of. <laughs> I mean, to this day, it's, it's probably why I start companies is so I can talk to people. Yeah. And, and did, were you, where did you grow up? Was it Southern California? Northern. And so when you were growing up in, in Northern California and you're looking at these magazines, like, what did you think you wanted to do with your life? Like, were, were, were you, what were your kind of plans at that point? Uh, I didn't have any. It was, it was to surf and skate. That was my plans. So my whole existence in high school was surfing and skating. And then when I got to senior year, it was, okay, how can I get to live on the beach? And to really do that was UCSB because you are living on the beach. So uh, that's where I ended up going to school so I could surf. You know, and it's just, it's, it was trying to f- just find that critical path of the least that I had to do in order to achieve the lifestyle that I really wanted. So I went to UCSB so I could surf, you know, got out of there with a 2.0. And then, you know, just kind of started figuring stuff out after that. But it, it was it was really that drove everything. Yeah. And were you interested in anything uh, other <clears throat> than surfing at UCSB? Did you start to think like, hey, like there might be something else out there or was it all surf all the time? Yeah, it kind of was, you know, living in a, you know, after that and lived in a van and, and that was, and riding mountain bikes, you know, mountain biking was just coming on the scene and the two complemented each other really well. So no, I can't really say I thought past the next month. So when would you say you got your first real job? I'm still working on it. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's you've mastered that, but it it did look like that you uh, had some experience at some other companies uh, prior to, to starting your own. Yeah. um, I would say the first real job was the company that I started, which was called Swobo in the, in the cycling industry. Before that, I was, you know, racing bikes and I was lifeguarding or, or something, you know, just to make ends meet. But yeah, the first job, real job was simply one that I created. And, and what's the story behind that? Oh, uh, it was uh, early 90s, mid 90s. It was and, and the answer to the to what was happening in cycling. So you had at that point, suspension fork had come to mountain bikes, which opened up the category immensely. And you had snowboarding, snowboarders in the summer times now hopping on mountain bikes because they were now fun because of suspension and, and became relevant to a much broader group of people rather than cyclists. So when that started getting off the ground, the apparel world was still just black lycra shorts and jerseys from Europe, you know, tight lycra jerseys. So we were credited with kind of changing the look of, of mountain biking culture in a way. And not unlike reading glasses, I mean, the first product that we had, we were, we were um, besides the traditional one or two, three vendors, that had been doing it for the last hundred years, we were the ones to bring back, first bring back wool jerseys. 
So we, we brought back a, um, a traditional fabric that no one wanted anymore. And then we paired it with a, with a bike messenger kind of punk culture and we, and we urbanized it. So cycling before that was pretty type A, you know, serious athletics, blah, blah, blah. And what we want to do was just take that and change it. So people fixated on the bicycle itself and the lifestyle around a bicycle that one could have without needing to be an Uber athlete. And was that business plan, the way you just articulated it, was it that concrete and thought out at the time? Or were you just like, hey, I, I like cycling, I like mountain biking, like I want to do something cool. Like, like where did it land on that spectrum? I mean, were you really saying like, I could make this a, a disruptive business? We didn't use that word back then because I don't think it, it, it existed. Because <laughs> it, it was early 90s. Um, but it, yeah, I think there was that mentality because we just watched what snowboarding did to skiing, right? Which was massive, right? It, it turned ski culture on its head. So we saw that there's a similar thing you could do in the streets uh, specifically and in uh, urban centers with with the bicycle and with uh, like cycling, like modern cycling. So uh, yeah, I think it was pretty conscious actually. And, and so what is it about that idea that that punk rock counterculture idea that, you know, we're going to come into a category, disrupt it, say, Hey, like we're the cool kids. Like, what is it about that for you that that's appealing? Um, I don't know if we go into it trying to be the cool kids. Um, that might be a byproduct of it, um, or in, in, in semi-intended consequence, but uh, what is it about that? I have to just think it just boils down to, it's just more fun. Right. And, and then when you really kind of peel away the onion on it, it's more profitable because there's less people doing it, which makes it a white space. So if, if you can, which makes your marketing costs lower, right? So if you're not competing um, with, the, with similar messages, there's less noise. Therefore, you can you know, maximize whatever it is that you are saying. So, I mean, that's not anything that I was conscious of at the time, but in hindsight, if you were to look at why would you do that, there's some economic reasons for doing it. And there's um, reasons to do it because it's, I just find it way more fun. Yeah. And as you were um, creating this new brand, it's Swobo. Do I have that right? Kind of like with- Yeah. yeah. S-W-O-B-O. Yeah. Swobo. Like, were you getting resistance? Were people- not happy with you, you know, that were the establishment in the category. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are plenty of people who are not happy with us and that's how you rally the people who are happy with you, you know? Uh, but you know, it, it's a fine line. And I, I think we had incredible respect for all the right things and no respect for things that didn't matter. So when you, if you were, so when we would do the trade show, I would have a bike messenger from New York City, you know, let's say 25 years old, blue hair, you know, piercings all over their face, holding up the same piece of clothing as like a 65-year-old nostalgic uh, skater, or skater um, cyclist, 
they could point to the same thing and go, that's cool. And I, and that's always been uh, a goal of mine is, is to make the product almost agnostic to the message, make the message be the product and articulate that better than most. So, 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 so there's old school cyclists that really appreciated what we were doing and respected the craft of, of the, of the Marina wool and, and the heritage of it and bringing it back and caring about it. And then there is the kids in the streets that were stoked because it wasn't all, you know, super clean athletes that the sport was about. Yeah. And you, you said, and I'll, I'll paraphrase cause I probably won't get it, get it totally right, but it was this idea about make the message, you know, something bigger than the product and articulate it better than most. And that's a pretty like advanced sort of idea. You know, I don't think most people mm-hmm. just enter the market and think, think that way. Now, was that something that was intrinsic to you that, that came natural to you? Or did you learn this idea that like, Hey, you're really selling something else, something bigger than, mm-hmm. than the actual product. Was that, was that a, something you actually learned or did that just come naturally? It came naturally. I didn't learn it anywhere. Uh, I think it's just instincts. It's a good instinct. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so it's like taking it. So you, so you take a, a very, tra- the, the most traditional piece of cycling apparel you could possibly make, which is the, the wool jersey. And then when we first came out, we had a model, uh, this woman with like short crop, punky, like purple hair. And like that picture was spread everywhere. Every media channel picked it up. I mean, it, 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 it leads people to ask the question, what's going on here? It's not so straightforward. And that's something that I always am shooting for is it, the brand is, is always on a journey to keep people engaged on a level to where they're asking questions rather than a brand just pushing answers back out. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. And so as you're, as you're building this brand, as you're building Swovo, like what's going on there? I mean, did you know that, I mean, was it just a rocket ship from the beginning or were you? No, it was a shit show. (laughs) (laughs) No, it was my first business. (laughs) What happened? So what happened with that business? Where where did did it ultimately go? Uh, I sold it to Santa Cruz Bicycles. And was, yeah, was that a good, was that a good sale for you? No, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. but, um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's live and learn. You know, I've been asked this a lot, you know, like, would you consider it a success and what would you do different? And mainly people ask like, well, what would you do different? And I honestly wouldn't do a single thing different. I would have, I mean, it was pain like to, to liquidate, you know, the brand when you're young and, and, to, and to take that one right in the chops, dealing with some unsavory invest investors, but come the end of the day, like we had a mission to change the way people thought about the bicycle. And I, I think we, we helped in that in some way, shape or form. So it was a success. We learned a lot. It sucked in many ways at towards the end, but at the same time, um, I just, I, I know it sounds cliche, but I just wouldn't, I seriously wouldn't change a single thing. And so coming out of that experience, you, you liquidate, did you go work for Santa Cruz or did? No, no. It was actually like that same month, I got a call from Patagonia, the CEO there saying, we have this surf business that's fledgling and can you come fix it? And was Yvonne, Yvonne Chouinard the CEO at the time? He was not. His name is Michael Crook. And that's who called me. And then luckily I did get to work with Yvonne because Yvonne was very passionate and wanted this thing to work. It was going to work. So he wanted to make sure that it was somewhat hands-on. So to this day, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have, you know, driven up and down the California coast with them and go out to the, the ranch, the Hollister ranch and um, just have long conversations with them about all kinds of stuff. So I imagine that had to be an incredibly well, maybe not like what you're hoping for, for someone to offer you a job, if someone's going to offer you a job uh, after your your first business to get the call from Patagonia to come get involved in something you love and care so deeply about surfing, that had to be pretty awesome. It was great. It was great. Again, lucky. So I was there a year, year and a half. Uh, it was turned it around. It was successful. Uh, people were happy. Yvonne was happy. Uh, and then from there, I started a brand consultancy. Yeah, and so why not stay at Patagonia? Why why start a brand consultancy? Oh, uh, because we were living still up in up in Mill Valley, California, which uh, was a plane flight away from Ventura. So I was literally flying down Monday mornings. And, you know, I'd leave the house about four a.m. to get to the airport for a six o'clock flight. Um, I'd stay down in Ventura till Thursday night. And then fly home Thursday night and do it all over again Monday morning. And um, so I did that for a year. That was a big part why I didn't do that. <laughs> I'm exhausted just listening to you talk about it. I can only yeah. imagine. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. And so you decide that you're going to part ways and you, you form a brand mm -hmm. consultancy. Like, how did that go? It was, um, again, I see, I feel that was another gift. I mean, anytime people welcome you into their home like that, so that was fun. So I, I called it Par Goldman and Burn. And there was no Goldman and there was no Burn. But uh, sounds good. It, it, yeah, it worked up until I was I was in the boardroom of LL Bean. And I just delivered a project that I'd spent God knows how long, like eight months maybe. Can't remember. And it all went well. And every, these, I had my business card there and picks it up. And one of the guys looks at it and goes, Okay, so where's Goldman and Byrne? I go, oh, you know Oscar Goldman from the Six Million Dollar Man? He goes, yeah. I goes, 
Well, I kind of wish that he was my partner, but he's not really my partner. And then David Byrne from The Talking Heads. I love that guy too. So I wish he was my partner, but he's not really my partner. Okay, I think it's funny. They didn't think it was funny. They didn't think it was funny? <laughs> they didn't think it was funny. I mean, like from, from the, if you're going to hire a brand consultancy, it might as well be one that's like, you know, having uh, made up partners of their, their yeah. boyhood dreams, you know? Oh, and the logo looked really regal, you know, with the shield. But if you look really closely, there's like a shaka inside the shield. So that was like the giveaway that maybe something was up. <laughs> so, so, so literally you had a, you had a part with LB as a customer because of that? Oh, no, no, no. It was, it was over because I, I had delivered the goods and I was done. But it, it, was, it was the only time that that name didn't work. And, you know, I had great, I had fantastic clients like Kona mountain bikes to this day. I'm still close friends with and, um, Patagonia and a lot of outdoor industry or sports or surf related talking about big, you know, big strategic thinking around brands. And I remember having one meeting where it was just painful as and every consultant has, has these clients. And I just remember walking out thinking, uh, I'm done. And I remember reading this quote, which I thought is so brilliant. And it never occurred to me, but the quote was in order to do something different, you can't do things the same. Yeah. So if I don't want to do this anymore, like I need to stop doing this like right now, I just need to stop and I need to do something different. And that's when I stopped consulting. And it was, was it as cut and dry as that? Did you fire, you know, fire any existing clients? And well, there weren't not, oh, I was, I was, no, I ran out a couple of the clients, you know, I had to tell them that I was kind of closing up shop and and yeah. And then that was that. And what was your personal life like at this time? Did you have a family? Did you have, yeah. And so what was that conversation like? Uh, Well, it gets better because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> then I think a month after that, I decided that I was going to learn guitar and start a bluegrass band and, and tour the United States, the Western United States. So uh, my my wife has a successful dance business in, in Northern California. So we were able to, I could work for the dance business doing marketing related things while I was on the road playing music. So it, it all kind of worked out in a way. So it, I, I joined the, uh, the family business for a while and played music. Yeah. And how did that, uh, that musical uh, career go? Uh, it was super fun. I mean, I didn't really know how to do any of it. So I spent time learning how to learn, which was interesting. And a, a lot of this with the music was a catalyst for what we're doing now with Caddis. Because I had to learn, I had to learn how to learn being at the time uh, in my mid forties, late forties and, and your brain is different. So there's a strategy to learning something difficult, like acoustic guitar, you know, flat picking bluegrass and, and you don't want to waste time when you're that age. So I did a lot of reading on how to learn and then got a really good teacher and I was practicing six, seven hours a day and to get up to speed. But a lot of that process is, is context for you know, this whole aging platform of what is now Caddis. 
And this is actually before Caddis was even created. So it's all, it, it all kind of leads to where we are today. Yeah. And you, and you mentioned that we, we learn differently and there's strategies for that. Like, are you able to talk at like a high level, like what those are like? So, I mean, specifically for music, let's just stick to it something so it's concrete, but I'm sure you could apply it to a lot of different things. You, you have to really pinpoint what you want to learn, break it up to a bunch of different pieces. Don't spend any more than 15 to 20 minutes on like on focus on it and then go do like put it down and go do something else like completely leave it and then go back and do it all over again and you have to break everything down in small chunks of material and in time and there's a consistency to it which makes your your learning curve do this instead of this which isn't 100% true because eventually you do this and you plateau and then you kind of need to find these incremental gains. But in a nutshell, it's, and this is complete layman's terms, but it's break things into small chunks. Don't spend, um, you know, hours and hours kind of dwelling on it. Spend like, because your mind will wander, like spend 15, 20, 30 minutes in a real deep dive and then chill out and go do something else and then come back to it and deep dive again. Hmm. Well, th- thanks for sharing. That's awesome. Like I, uh, I just assumed we kind of had a normal learning pattern throughout our lives. I didn't realize that we, we learn differently as we, as we grow older. Yeah. The brain, the brain changes. And uh, one of the best things you can do for your brain as you age is learn music. Cause it's one of the few things, uh, if you think about it, you're using audio, you're hearing something, you're thinking about something, you're acting, there's a physical action to it. And then you have to, you know, recreate, there's the hand movement, there's left hand, right hand. It basically hits every lobe on your brain. Oh, well, you just gave me permission to tell my wife, I'm going to re-pick up the guitar for like the 10th <laughs> the time in my career, I think. I picked it up and set it down too many times, but I love that. And so after the the music career, did is that when you started Caddis? Yes. So it was actually during, you know, I thought I could um, do both. So I'm going to start this company. I'll tour. I can work out of the van, you know, with my laptop, all good. That's a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Let the record show that that's a bad idea. (laughs) You heard it here first. And why... Why do that? You made the comment, I think, earlier in our conversation that you probably really didn't have to do this. Like this, you didn't have to start another company. Sounds Mm -hmm. like that you had the ability to work for the family business and pursue your dream of playing bluegrass on the road. Like, isn't that enough? Like, why, Mm -hmm. like, why start a company at, you know, at this point in your life and what, what you have going on? Yeah. It got to a point where I couldn't not do it. Like it was, uh, it, it was irresponsible of me like to do it, not to do it. If I didn't do it, um, like it was one of those, like, okay, my circle of friends or my contacts are the people to do this thing. If you don't do this thing, someone's going to do it. And it, it's, it may not be as good. So you have to go do this thing now. And were you starting to circulate this idea and get positive reinforcement or was this just bumbling up in the, the back of your own mind? 
No, I was getting, I was getting a mixed bag. Some people just didn't get it. And some people really got it. And it, it took a friend of mine. I had just came back from playing, you know where it was? It was, uh, we played the, the, uh, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. And I remember coming as long ass drive home and, and I went to dinner a couple of days later with a friend of mine um, who at the time was, uh, I believe he was the CEO of, of Nixon Watches. And he asked me like, and I've known him forever. And he goes, well, where are you at with this reading glass idea that you told me about? And I go, yeah, I'm looking into this and I'm looking into that. And, and he just, he saw right through the bullshit. And he goes, no, he goes, you start that tomorrow. And I, okay. <laughs> so then I came home and told my wife what Scott told me. And, and I go, what do you think? She's like, well, what do you think? I go, all right, let's, let's do it. You know, because you got to have everyone on board because as we noted earlier, they're hard and they take a toll on everybody. So kind of got the sign off on it and away we went. But it, it was that feeling of like, you can't not do it. I was going to say it's it it just too late. Like it got to be too late. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I love imagining like, you know, Scott just giving you the tough love and, and Oh, he uh, gave and, me the, the talk. And then he, he dropping, the truth, dropping truth bombs. <laughs> and so like, what was the first thing you did after that? Like, how did you get started? So I, I knew I didn't want to, well, so I had, I brought it up to a certain point and I don't even know what that point was at this juncture, but then I, I knew I didn't want to do it alone. And I knew if I was going to do it, I wanted to do it with the best people that I've ever worked with. So I made a, a couple of email calls. I think the first one was to Dustin Robertson, who was at backcountry.com forever, who I'd known through my Swobo days and ran the idea by him. And he just sent me like this email back that says, okay, let's go. <laughs> and that was that. And uh, so him, and then it kind of trickled to my partner at Swobo, I mean, which was, you know, 20 years prior, if not longer, getting him on board, um, my friend Enoch Harris, those were the three cores. Uh, and then those people knew people, and then it grew out to, I think, five people total <clears throat> by the time we launched it. But... I wasn't going to go it alone. I've done that before and there's no reason to do it. You need really good, um, experienced people to get something like this going. Yeah. No, and that, that leads me, I was going to ask, like, as you're assembling this team, this kind of, uh, a tribute band, so to speak of, of, of players, like, what, exactly. are you looking, what, what are you looking for? Like, what are you, what are you thinking? You know, cause obviously experience, but you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty easy. What else are you looking for in these, and these people that you're bringing on board to help you achieve this goal? Uh, personality types. So I, I know that these things are roller coasters. So, you know, people that the shit's going to hit the fan and, you know, it, it's all going to be okay. I mean, most of these people who I started with, I've known for over 25 years. So, um, you know, we were going to succeed together or fail together and both were okay. 
So now you've built up Caddis and it's, it's, it's got momentum. It's, it's turning into this brand that, that stands mm-hmm. for more than, than just readers. Um, mm-hmm. But like, what's hard about it? Like, what don't we know? Like, what's hard about the reader business? Oh, uh, you know, it's not the reader business that's hard. It's businesses that are hard. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I won't really say that the reader business is hard because they're all hard, you know? It doesn't matter. I don't care what you're doing. This is something like I've given talks at at colleges or whatever, and you know you get a lot of questions, and there's no easy path. Like it doesn't matter what it is or what gifts you have. Like they are all hard, especially in. I shouldn't say especially. That's biased. I'm I'm biased to think that when you make stuff, like the amount of crap that can go wrong <laughs> on any given moment you know, from shipments being bad to, you know, fabrics that bleed into, you know, and, and all kinds of, there's just a myriad of things that can happen. So, I mean, and right now today, you know, the company's growing really fast and we're just, you know, we're adding people at a fast rate. You know, the hardest thing is, I would say it's, it's always been the same thing. And we are a remote business. So, that's part of the the beauty and the challenge is that we've always been a a, a, a re- remote business. So so communication will always be a challenge, you know how we move ideas around and and get projects done. But I mean, in a nutshell, to answer your question, I think they're all just hard. And so one of the things that I think is really cool and distinguishable about your brand is on the top of, and I don't even know what you call the top of the frame here. I'm sure you have a yeah, name I don't know either. Oh, no, okay. There's not like a fancy name. I was like, he's going to tell me it's like some no, I'm fancy not saying name. That I'm not saying that there's not a fancy name. I'm telling you, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but you have things like regular and goofy uh, over the eyes uh, imprinted on the frame. I think you have yeah. a, a port and starboard one. Where, where does that come from? Like, where, like who, whose idea was that? And why, why do that? Yeah, it's kind of like why not? Which ones are these? Uh, so these are these are the Mister cartoons. So there's one that says Izquierda and Derecha, which is left and right in Spanish. There's Port Starboard, Goofy, Regular. It seemed like a good surface, <laughs> so why not ride on it? <laughs> yeah, underutilized. No one else is doing it. Uh, it's really, it's really, really, yeah, it's really, really cool. I mean, it's, it's yeah. like, yeah. I Maximize your, your uh, assets. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, you just showed us the, the Mr. Cartoon. What's your favorite frame? Is it the Mr. Cartoon or is there? I don't have one. Uh, and I always compare this. I, I, I was listening to Terry Gross uh, interview Keith Richards and she asked him what his favorite song was. And she just, he just ripped her head off saying how, ah, Terry, it's like trying to pick a favorite child and like, you don't do that. And da, 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 da. So I kind of feel the same way. Yeah. Well, I have I like three kids and I'll tell you right now, I have a favorite. It's not always the same one. It changes from time to time, but at any given time, I do have a favorite. So I think everyone that says they don't is lying. Okay. You're probably true. Uh, Miklos, I would say. Yeah. Nicholas is my favorite. <laughs> Story about Keith Richards makes me think, you know, I, I know that you work with a lot of like really cool influencers and ambassadors that are like aging athletes and surfers and musicians, but who have you seen where your product that you didn't have a relationship with that just really like 
blew your mind. You're like, I can't believe that they, <laughs> that they're wearing my stuff. Oh man. Lately there's been a few, you know, um, Gwyneth Paltrow, Juliet Lewis, Julianne Moore, uh, Dave Grohl. And I heard that Shepard Ferry has, um, Pete Souza, the white house photographer. <laughs> so they're just, I mean, it's like Katie Couric. Yeah. Know, is posting about him and doing all kinds. Of, so like, I don't run in those circles, obviously. So it's, it's cool when you see that and people have, there's a lot of pride around the discovery and the, the people that take selfies, you know, and are posting them and saying that like, I support this, you know, and without any prodding from us, I think it's fantastic. It, It means that the, the communication is leaving and it's coming back that it's been received. And to me, that's like, I don't care if I die tomorrow. Like when, when people do that with our with a brand, it's, it's the holy grail. And so as you're building this brand, as you're spreading this message, what's next for Caddis? Where, where do you want this thing to go? Well, what we're going to do is, is further develop this idea of owning age. So beyond reading glasses. And one of the first things we're doing is we're starting a newsletter that's going to grow into something bigger, but that's called humongous living. And then, uh, from humongous living, we've just started, uh, a new nonprofit called musicfarming.org, which I'm super excited about because the, the company from the get go took 1% of gross revenue and we, and we gave it to music education programs across the United States. That's a soft spot for me personally. What was happening, we're growing so fast that that bucket of cash grew to a size that I couldn't manage. So the idea is, okay, let's pull it out of Caddis, create a separate entity to which other brands can contribute into, and we actually grow this thing uh, where we can start helping, uh, people doing the, the hard work, uh, on the, you know, in the trenches, getting instruments, paying teachers, whatever they need so that we can make, make music education, uh, something important again in this country. And that is Tim Parr, founder of Caddis. As I reflect on our conversation, Tim said something to me that I can't get out of my head. He said, that's where the fun lies in changing people's minds. And I couldn't agree more. I thought Tim's journey was full of gold nuggets about building a brand and building a business. But if you were to take one thing away from this conversation, it's sell the message more than the product. A big thank you to Tim Parr and the Caddis team I love this mission you're on to help people own their age. I could probably use a little of that secret sauce myself. We will link to all things Tim Parr, Caddis, and Music Farming, the nonprofit Tim discussed in the episode, in the show notes. And if you know of a guest who should appear on our show, please drop me a line at podcast at wildstory.com. Our best guests, like Tim, come from referrals from past guests and our listeners. Well, that's the show. 
Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 